Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a wonderful show for you this evening. Captain Lynn Ripplemeyer is here, and we are going to learn all about her, her history, uh, flying the 747, and so many other wonderful stories. Before we get started, just a few tips. First of all, the the Social Flight Fly to Win Challenge is in full swing right now, and we are giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. So be sure to go and check that out. All you have to do is get the free Social Flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, or check out socialflight.com. Need the mobile apps in order to go out and check in at your local airport or at any airports that you fly to. You get points for your check-ins, and even one check-in gets you entered into win in the contest. Get multiple check-ins and get onto our leaderboard, and you have additional entry in order in that contest to win that Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. We just continue to give away wonderful prizes here and uh, it's just a great way to support general aviation and get you out there and flying as much as possible. And even if you're not in the market for that headset, you can actually just open up Social Flight, check it out and find one of the thousands of aviation events or destinations near you to get you out there and flying this weekend and every weekend to come. Now, another quick thing is, of course, tonight's broadcast will be part of the Social Flight podcast. Uh, that is available on all podcast services. So you can get that on your phone, listen to it during your drive, etc. And also our learning system, just go on to Social Flight and you'll see an icon for the FAST team, the FAA learning system that we have where you can watch videos in there and take quizzes for WINGS credit as well as AMT, that's Aviation Maintenance Technician courses, and also credits towards an IA renewal if you happen to be an airframe and power plant mechanic with an inspection authorization. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Avidyne. Avidyne, we're just so thrilled. They're such a, a strong supporter of Social Flight and uh, their IFD 440, 540, and 550 systems are, are just wonderfully great systems to fly behind. And with the recent announcements, that's the old Garmin uh, 430 and, and 530 systems are just not gonna get supported anymore. Uh, it's really important that you can get a slide-in replacement and basically uh, be able to upgrade over lunch, essentially. If you bring it to one of those shops, they can slide in, configure it, get you ready to go. I love flying behind Avidyne equipment and would not trade it for anything because it's just so easy, um, even when I'm flying complex, uh, hard IFR, uh, to just deal with reroutings and all sorts of other stuff. It, they're great units, so I sincerely do love it and can't wait for to see their new Vantage system when that comes out. Now, tonight's guest, beginning as a flight attendant for TWA, Lynn Ripplemeyer blazed an unprecedented path from cabin to cockpit. She became a pilot, setting a number of firsts along the way, from being the first or part of the first all-female crew of a scheduled airline in 1977 to the first female captain of a transatlantic Boeing 747 in 1984. During her career, she flew aircraft ranging from a Cub on, on floats, straight floats, um, to the Haviland Twin Otter and Boeing airliners, including the 727, the 737, the 747, and even the 787. Her decades-long career paved the way toward gender equality in the airlines and remains an icon for young women looking towards the skies to this day. And that is shown by the fact that her uniform resides in the Smithsonian Museum. Her two books, Life Takes Wings, which I have a copy of right here and absolutely love, and the about-to-be-released Life Takes Flight are absolutely outstanding. I literally could not put them down from the time that I started reading them. I'm thrilled to have her with us tonight. I'm going to bring her on the line right now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Captain Lynn 
Ripplemeyer. How are you doing? Hi. Doing great, thanks. Nice Thank you so much for taking time to join us here on the show. And, and I also appreciate because, as I understand it, you are in a hotel room right now with a Seaboard World Reunion, a reunion of pilots from the first time that you had the opportunity to fly the 747. And I don't want to fast forward too much, but that's, that's where you are now. Is that right? That's true. We're here in Cocoa Beach. We spent the day um, visiting the Kennedy Space Center <clears throat> and um, catching up on 40 years. Um, so yeah, uh, welcome to my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Now, um, I, I'd like you to take us back because your story <laughs> and, and how all of this gets started, it reads like a fiction novel. I mean, yeah. it, it really does. So how did you, tell me a little bit about childhood and getting started. How did you, first of all, find your way into being a flight attendant and then get the inspiration and the ability to actually start flight lessons from that position? Um, it is quite a story that um, I felt like I, I did need to write it down. Um, I grew up on a farm in Southern Illinois. Um, I know we've been, some of our other friends have been talking about how their fathers were in the military. No, my father was a farmer. We grew wheat and corn and soybeans and pigs and cows, and I had a horse, and that's as close as I could get to flying. I would pretend that horse was Pegasus right up on top of the hills and pretend it could sprout wings and I could fly. Um, and so I imagined it, and I'd wave at the planes that were flying overhead. They flew the pipeline, they said, some, uh, I guess, oil pipeline that went underneath our fields, and I'd wave at them, and they'd rock their wings back, and I'd imagine what it must look like up there. And may have said to somebody at that time, you know, wouldn't it be fun to be a pilot? And go, yeah, you can't do that. You're a girl. Um, and it was true. My choices at the time, for, like all women, were to be either a nurse or a, a teacher, was what I was told. So I went to school with a, <clears throat> excuse me, a teaching scholarship at the University of Illinois. And a student taught for a little bit in inner city Chicago. And when the principal didn't appreciate my innovative teaching ideas, is how I like to think of it, um, I didn't get the encouragement that I was hoping for to go into the teaching field, which I really enjoyed and I think I would have been good at. Um, a girlfriend was going for an interview at TWA. So I went along with her to keep her company and we both ended up getting hired and moved to New York uh, to fly. And the 727 had just, uh, come online with TWA in 1972. And um, it was the junior airplane. None of the other flight attendants wanted to fly it. And the junior position on the airplane was climbing those circular stairs to serve the cockpit because nobody really wanted to deal with the pilots. Nothing against pilots, I am one, but at that time, uh, sexual harassment had not been coined yet. And it was fun for the guys to um, use the flight attendants to pull jokes on and make fun of and for entertainment. Mm. Um, I quickly learned that if I asked a lot of questions about the airplane and their, their job and what was going on and how we were staying in the air <laughs> and uh, sitting behind the flight engineer, what everything on the flight engineer panel was about, we could have an intelligent conversation and I actually learned something and it was worth it to me to be the, the view, as, you, as all pilots know, is just beautiful up there. I mean, you get to see sunrises and sunsets and uh, the world from seven miles up, um, crossing the Atlantic, the Alps turning pink at sunrise, um, the, the, the moon rising on a clear night, making a ribbon of light on the, it's just, anyway, it was gorgeous. So I liked spending time up there, learned a lot about airplanes and flying. Um, and then because of a, pilot strike, um, worked on a boat, helped the guy get the boat to the to a lake in Lake Champlain. Some friends came in to say, welcome him back, and in a little Piper Cub on floats, and offered me a ride. And looking at the instruments, I knew what the instruments were from being in the 747, but <laughs> the contrast of, you know, when I look at the 74, it's so huge. It's, it's amazing the thing can get into the air. And then looking at this little cub, kind of the same thing in the other extreme, it was so tiny and fragile. And even when you touched it, yeah, it was fabric um, that this thing's gonna get into the air. But um, 
they took the gentleman took me up for a, a flight and I had a blast and so he and his wife were instructors and they liked having an excuse to take their little toy up into the air so they offered flying lessons for the summer and I could think of nothing that I would have loved more I mean it's the best gift the gift of wings I mean how, how <laughs> isn't um, that wonderful <laughs> uh, yeah to be able to yeah give somebody that gift to be able to fly did you did you find that 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 taking uh, that moving into the the role of being a flight attendant at that point was that something in itself that uh, that attracted you? I mean, here you are. That was your first you coming out of t teaching, and that was your first opportunity there. What were your what kind of drew you to that lifestyle to to kick that off? Well, that's it exactly. You said it. The lifestyle. Um, it was not a nine to five and. It, it was different every time. Um, you got to meet amazing people. You got to see the world, literally. Um, and then the side benefits, the travel privileges are incredible. Uh, uh, because of those travel privileges, I got to fly the, uh, climb the Matterhorn and sail, uh, over, you know, sail through French Polynesia. It just, it, it opens up the world to you. Um, wow. As a flight attendant, even. Um, yeah. It's just that, it's more fun doing the flying <laughs> than, yes. than the serving. But um, I, was yes, it, it was an introduction into the world of aviation. Was it a natural progression for you to, um, to, to have that curiosity in the cockpit and to, to try to draw out as much as you could from that? I, I think I have a natural curiosity about wherever I am and whatever is going on. And I love to learn um, about my environment. And so since I was there, that was uh, the natural thing to be asking questions about, I think. Um, I was always interested in how things worked. Um, so, yeah, having an explanation of how a jet engine works or how, you know, how the airplane works in general, how the parts and pieces come together to allow people to be in that environment <laughs> and travel. Um, so it was, yeah, I think it, it served me well um, to, to introduce me in that way. Yes. At what point did you, was it the Cub or was it when you were actually flying for the airlines that you started, or not flying, but uh, flying with the airlines as flight attendant, that you started to kind of get that bug of this is really something I want to find a way to do? Oh, I, I solo. Solo did it. I didn't expect to be able to solo in that Cub. It was their baby. It was It was older than me. I mean, I think the Edo floats had been made in, I don't know, sometime in the 40s. And um, so, like I said, it was just, and, and it was just for fun. There was no reason for me to get a license. There were no female pilots. There was no goal. Um, it was just a fun thing to do. <clears throat> and I couldn't get, even get my private license in it because you can't do the cross-country cross flights or the soft and short field landings, but they were giving me all the ground school. We were doing all the exercises uh, that, that I would need. And then, one day um, <clears throat> towards the end of the summer and I knew what we were going to have to take the plane out of the water because the lake freezes over and so one day we cut the we cut the lesson a little bit short and we're drifting into shore and <laughs> my instructor taps me on the shoulder and hands me this piece of paper and it was unusual because he had gotten usually he was always flying in the back and I had to get in the front and this time he was sitting in the front and he had me get in the back um, and I, you know, swim out to the plane and um, wrap up in a towel and, and fly. So he gives me this piece of paper that says, be back in 10. And I hear this splash and he's jumped out. He's jumped out of the plane and he's <laughs> <laughs> turning the plane was weather vaning into the wind. So I can tell, he goes, you're, you're gone. And the only way I could get back was to take off and, and come back. And he's swimming to shore. <laughs> so that was, that was my solo. Um, a little bit of a unique way to, to solo, I guess, but I can remember being up there. I mean, the plane took off so much faster and easier without, you know, with just me in it and thinking about all the people that had, had done that. And I'd heard, um, you don't come back from a solo the same person. Um, you know, now that you can, you can do this. And so I had the, I just had the best time uh, following the outline of the island, of the island and, doing all the things that we had done with an instructor, but it was just me. And then doing some touch and goes on the way back. And um, 
yeah, I was addicted. You know, I thought that this is how I want to spend as much time. And I knew it was going to be expensive. So well, as much money as I can put together and as much time as I've got, this is it. But again, it was going to have to be a hobby. Um, I did hear that women could be instructors. So I thought that may be how I could uh, feed my addiction or, or <laughs> pay for that time was to gradually get my instructor's license. Um, and then I had uh, happened to see a, a first class passenger was reading the private pilot handbook. Hey, you know, I'm reading that too, uh, but I you know, can't take any more lessons because it's in the water. And he said, well, then you just go down to, you know, get in a land plane. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I finished up my lessons in Tamiami Airport um, with my private instructor commercial. And, and, in, and while I was taking lessons, they told me they needed instructors. So if I finished up my licenses there, I could be one of their instructors and a, and a um, charter pilot. So that was my life for about five years. I had two lives. I'd go up to New York and be a flight attendant for TWA on the 747. And then I'd go down to Miami and um, give instruction and fly, fly charters, mostly over to the Bahamas or um, around Florida. So, um, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was good. It was there. All, I thought that was how it was going to stay until I found out the airline, w women could fly airplanes, they realized, and they were accepting uh, applications. The airlines were accepting applications for women. How did things change with your, your kind of outlook on your, on your career as you were a, a kind of had these two worlds where in one case, in, in one hand at the exact same time, you're a flight attendant with TWA kind of poking your head in the cockpit. On the other hand, here you are piloting, you've soloed, you know, you under, you actually understand the path or, or something about what's involved in doing that at least. What did that, was that a, a big turning point? Um, let's see how to say this. It could have been more of the, there were some really good guys at TWA that encouraged me, but the main the main message I got is that's really nice. You want to do this? This is really, yeah, but women just can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's the physical part, and there's you know, and that don't. There's a lot of stress and emotion up here, and you can't be emotional, and uh, you know, psychological. Uh, and excuse you, me, your audience, but the, there's that time of month when you just, you know, aren't going to be able to do anything and should, <laughs> and we can't schedule around that. I mean, they were, and a lot of these guys were my friends and I thought we're, you know, we're being honest. Well, and it's, and there's no, there's a natural progression in the airlines with seniority to captain. And we can't have a woman as a captain. No man in his right mind is going to take orders from a woman. And now you've got a safety issue going on. And, uh, and then there's the heavies, uh, and no woman can ever fly heavy. So, you know, you're just, women getting into the airlines is just really messing everything up. And you're a nice person. Don't do that. <laughs> I mean, those, that, those are the messages that I was truly getting. Yeah. Um, but then I heard that <clears throat> Bonnie had been hired at American and Emily at Frontier. And I wrote to him and I said, it, you know, is this really true? Are your airlines really letting you fly airplanes? Because the guys had told me, well, yeah, they'll hire them, but it's it's just a publicity stunt. Uh, it's that's, And they said, no, we're, we're on the seniority list. It's working. You know, the guys get used to it. It's a culture shift. And they said, and you've been a flight attendant. So you, you're used to the um, the lifestyle. And that's the, that's the main thing. So I didn't argue with the guys. Um, there was sometimes when I was up there and they had to go to the bathroom, they'd let me sit in the seat. And I realized later it was to make, to impress upon me how difficult, and they let me take the, um, take it off uh, autopilot to impress upon me how difficult this job was and why I just really would never be able to do it. But it worked just the opposite. I mean, well, <laughs> it's not that hard. And if these guys can do it, <laughs> Certainly I can. So when they'd say, well, I'm sure you understand why, you know, women will never do this. I'm thinking, nope, don't understand <laughs> that at all. <laughs> but, you know, uh, we don't need to have that discussion. You and, know, one of the things that, that we pointed out in the book that that's interesting is that even the, the regulations, even the things from the FAA, like there was a time when once a woman, even though they were women were able to be pilots and get a license, that if you got pregnant, you lost your license and you lost your medical. 
That's true. That does go back further than my time. Uh, a lady who named Betty Gillies, who was a wasp and one of the first uh, female pilots, um, uh, went to Washington and had that changed. Um, but it was thanks to her. But before that, yeah, you lost your license and you had to start all over. So it's 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 been a journey. Um, we're closer than we've ever been before, but we, we really do have a ways to go yet. Uh, only, I think we're up to 6% now of the commercial airline pilots are women. That's part of the reason for the books and for me giving presentations. Um, I just want women to know it's it's an incredible career. Uh, just like, well, like what you're saying, you get to see the world and it's very conducive to family. Uh, it's not, because that's one of the questions I get a lot when I'm giving a presentation with young girls but you're gone all the time. How can you have a family? There's there's choices of being a pilot, different jobs you can get, different schedules you can have. Um, that I raised two boys as a single mom, uh, very successfully, that turned into very nice young men, and was able to be home every night. Um, I had a flight to Tegucigalpa, Honduras to do it, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but um, yeah, there there's you can have a schedule that allows a very nice lifestyle. Um, but back to getting in, getting into the airline, I guess, my first airline you mentioned was Air Illinois, where um, I, <laughs> do you want that story, how that turned out? Oh, of course, <laughs> absolutely, I was gonna ask you about that. Tell me about your first airline job. Oh, there's so many, there's so many stories. Um, <clears throat> well, I was a flight attendant for TWA, and uh, we had a uh, layover in St. Louis, and my sister lived in Carbondale. So I was going to rent a car and go down to Carbondale and visit her during the 24 hour layover. And as I'm walking the rest of the crew out, who's gonna catch the crew bus, I see this little kiosk that says Air Illinois, next flight Carbondale in 10 minutes. So I walked up to the pilots and I'm in my flight attendant uniform and most of the airlines will give reciprocal agreements to other airline employees. So I said, um, hey, you're going to Carbondale, can I go along? And they said, sure. Um, and I said, well, you, you know, do you, do you need my ID? You know, to get a pass and go, oh, no, sorry. Our, our owner doesn't agree in those reciprocal agreements. Um, you'll have to get a ticket. And I went, oh, okay, well then I'll get the, go get the car. And he said, then finally goes, yeah, we can only uh, take people down if they're coming in for an interview. I said, oh, okay, well then I'll interview. No, we got enough flight attendants. And, he's, and then the other guy goes, yep, we just, we're always short on pilots. I said, oh, well then I'll interview as a pilot. And he thought I was kidding. And he goes, not, not funny. <laughs> I said, no, seriously, I've got 700 hours from being an instructor and flying charters down in, down in Florida. I, That's more than I had when I got hired. So he picks up my bags and starts walking and I start following him and we go out on the ramp and here's this twin otter. And he puts me up in, in a twin otter, the front seat is almost in the cockpit. So he left the door open, put headsets on me so I could talk all the way down to Carbondale. They wanted to know about TWA because of course they're building hours to be able to apply to be a TWA pilot. I wanna know about what they're doing. What they're doing. So um, we had a wonderful short flight down to Carbondale. <laughs> then while I'm waiting for my sister to come pick me up, I start feeling a little guilty because what if somebody puts the number of passengers together with the number of tickets and finds out they've just let me come in free. So I went up to the counter and said, um, uh, I, I just came in on the flight. I told the guys I was coming in for an interview so I could have a free ride. Um, can I have an application? And you know, we, we've got enough flight attendants. I know I want to interview as a pilot. And she goes, you do. <laughs> and she goes in the back and gets this guy that comes out I think he was a, a colonel in the Canadian army or something who owned this airline. Three, they had three twin otters and a, and a hawker, um, Hawker Sidley that flew up to Chicago. But so anyway, he comes out and he goes, so you think you want to be an airline pilot? And he puts his arm around me. And, oh, it was just so embarrassing. And he just thought, and he said, let me take you out and show you the Vic. So he takes me out in the hangar and here's Vic working on an, uh, on the engine. And I knew enough at that point, <clears throat> about jet engines, I was interested in how a turboprop compared with the, with the jet engine. And, and, and it made sense to me. So I was able to ask him intelligent questions, I guess, and learn, learn something and um, apologized for coming in and <laughs> taking up his time. 
and thought that was the end of it because it was obvious this man did not think women should be flying airplanes that owned the airline. Um, but two weeks later, Jennifer was the lady's name at the counter calls and says, okay, you're training. We've got a training class for you in two weeks. Can you be here? And I, I there's no way. Are you sure? He said, yeah, yeah. In fact, we hired another woman last month. Uh, she's a captain. All right. So my supervisor at TWA, my flight attendant supervisor knew about my dual life and, um, got me a nine month leave of absence so that I could um, go to training at Air Illinois, which lasted, I think, one week. <laughs> and it was mostly on the job training. But again, that man comes in during um, the end of the class and says to me, okay, you're trained. They tell me you're doing great, but, and we've got another woman, but obviously you two can't fly together. And I don't keep my emotions off my face very well, I guess. <laughs> what? And said, well, uh, we, we, we got to have a man up there in case anything goes wrong, don't we? And we don't want to scare away our passengers, do we? No, sir. I mean, you could say things like that then. And, and so for three months, Emily, and her name was Emily Jones, Captain Emily Jones. <clears throat> and I love knowing that there was a woman captain so that I could go back to TWA and say, yes, women can be captains and the guys have no problem with it whatsoever. The guys at Air Illinois were wonderful. Um, and then one dark and stormy afternoon, about three months later, in fact, it was December 30th, 1977, uh, nobody else could get to the airport uh, except the two of us. And so the dispatcher called the owner and said, we've got 15 people that wanna to go to St. Louis. What do you wanna do? He goes, fine, tell them they can take the airplane, but keep the door closed and nobody makes any announcements. <laughs> <laughs> you can get the passengers there, but they can't know <laughs> who, who flew them there. And then I, I guess since, well, there was no accident. Nobody got off, nobody refused to get on the airplane. And <laughs> um, we got, uh, they changed the rule and we got to fly together for the rest, for the next six months when I was still there. And um, got my thousand hours of turboprop time, which is what I needed for the application at TWA and put in an application to all the different airlines but I was hoping for TWA. Um, that was my family. That was where, and I kind of wanted to show those guys that, <laughs> yes, I could. Um, and- What was uh, the interview process like going through with those airlines? At that time, it was very extensive. I remember, <clears throat> well, 95% of, of the pilots at that time were out of the military. So, uh, and all the people interviewing were out of the military. So I, I didn't, I couldn't, and I mean, everybody in the military is kind of the same to me, but to them, there was this big difference between the army and the Navy and the Marines and, and, um, and what the interviews were like. Um, <laughs> we were talking about all the guys had on the exact same suit. They had all read the same book, Dress for Success. Um, United had the most extensive. I think that was like seven, you went through seven different interviews. Um, Delta was the most military. Oh, Delta at the time had a psychologist. You had to go, you had to talk to a psychologist. And the, the whole joke was the, you sat in a rocking chair. Uh, do you rock or not rock? <laughs> um, they, the, if you got to the physical, you had made it. So um, you were pretty certain to get accepted if your physical, if you went, were sent to the physical and your physical went well. But that was always the, the last step. There was sometimes something called a stanine test, um, uh, a space, a spatial recognition. I, sometimes there were written tests uh, and then there were always, uh, you know, the logbook check, make sure you didn't have any, what they call Parker pen time, ask you a lot of questions. I think I was, I don't think they ask a lot of the guys these kind of questions about um, if you can reach, I had to sit in the simulator to be able to show that I could reach the pedals and the, and all the switches and, and the yoke and the switches above and, and what I would do if the captain became incapacitated, if they, some of, some of the questions were very strange. Um, and it didn't have a lot of the, I know now, the interviews have a lot to do with getting along in teamwork, the CRM. There was none of that at the time. Um, mm -hmm. It was all, you may have to do this by yourself and how are you going to do that? Yeah. So um, it was, it was interesting. I, 
well, I was also, I was an English and psychology major. So I really enjoyed the psychology behind these interviews and what these guys were asking. But some, but I don't know that it was in doing me any favors. I'm like, why are you asking that? <laughs> so, That's funny. Um, so ultimately you got an opportunity and, and found your way in the cockpit. Was well, that I got it, uh, it actually ended up being a departmental transfer um, from flight attendant to pilot because I was still on the books at TWA as a, as a flight attendant. And uh, that, that was unique for their interview. They were concerned that if they hired me as a flight attendant, all the flight attendants would think they could be pilots. And they said, so you're not going to tell all the flight attendants they can. Be. I said, well, yeah, if they want to go through what I went through to get here, yeah, they can be a pilot. <laughs> so, um, it, it was an interesting time, I guess is the best way to put it. And, and so what was it like then uh, being making that first transition the first time that you were in the cockpit um, instead of the cabin? Um, we were... They were very excited about having us in training. They, TWA had not hired, a lot of the airlines hadn't hired for like seven or eight years. So we were one of the first classes to go through. So um, training was really excited about having us. It was unique to have women. Um, they hired three of us uh, within the first two classes and we quickly became very good friends and supported each other. And I don't know if I would have made it through without those ladies, um, Terry and Karen were their names, Karen Davies and Terry Foote. Um, we got a house together to be able to room together so that we'd get off flights and go, you <laughs> wait until I tell you this one. Um, like I said, most of the time, the guys were very supportive, but we did have what we called our 10% turkey factor that made it really difficult. Um, you could smoke in the cockpit then, so they'd uh, find ways to irritate you or upset you or uh, make you wish you weren't there. And... Um, and in fact, there was a saying that would be said over the radio, even with, with ATC from one, one woman's voice came on the radio, hey, there goes another empty kitchen. And it became this joke kind of a, a, of getting, getting women out of the air and back into the kitchen. And finally, there was a response, no, my husband's taking care of that just fine, thank you. <laughs> so um, it was a... Hmm, some hazing um, to be able to be accepted. We didn't get the immediate assumption that the guys did that they knew what they were doing and unless proven otherwise. It was us, we had to prove ourselves each time we got into the cockpit and we were on reserve. So every time was a new crew. Uh, but we found out if you did your job well, um, you gradually got, and you had, you had to have a sense of humor. Um, can I tell my funny story? Please. I was, I was going to ask you about them anyway. Because <laughs> I will say the, the book is, is, it's your story, but I, I love how there are so many um, funny stories. There just are tons. There's tons I, I put the book down and, and, and I'd, I'd be telling the story without, to, to anyone I could talk to. Good. Um, well, I, maybe it helped being an English major too, because I, 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 I see things, I see stories in life. I see my life as a story and, and I liked writing those stories down. And, well, and those instructors, the only thing that they wanted, they wouldn't let me pay for the lessons. They had lots of money. Um, the only thing they wanted was stories. And so when I'd go back to visit them, I'd tell them, but so that I wouldn't forget them, I'd write them down. And then I would write them letters and send them these letters that included all these stories and events and uh, with details about, you know, what the, what the engines looked like and what the conversation was. And they kept those letters and later gave me 20 years worth of letters. So that's a lot that's in the book. And that's why many of the stories can be that detailed because they were written the day after they happened and sent them to these people as letters. Isn't that but, wonderful? I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I wonder now. People don't write letters, so, you know, it's not getting written. Well, and I kept a journal and a diary, and my logbook looked more like a diary than a logbook, so a lot of those stories are, are written in that way. But, yeah, the funny story. So as a TWA flight engineer, um, we're down in Florida. A hurricane or tropical storm has gone through. Everything's been shut down for 24 hours. The ground's soaked. Um, it's 
Hang on just a second, please. Finally, um, they're releasing airplanes, so we're, we're taxiing out to the runway. We're number two for takeoff, and um, tower says everything's shut down. Um, air, air saturation, too many airplanes in the air right now. It's gonna be in at least an hour. So might as well shut down engines. So we did, we told the flight attendants they could uh, go ahead and serve the passengers, the meals and drinks. That's when you had meals on airplanes, <laughs> the meals and drinks. And, the, when, and I knew the flight attendants, I'd worked with them. So one of them comes up and says, hey, we got a problem in the back. There's a lady there with a seeing eye dog that she picked up and they're you know sitting at the bulkhead but the dog's been in the terminal all day and now's on the airplane and now she finds out there's another delay and the dog won't sit still because it has to go to the bathroom. What are we gonna do? And um, you know, she thought we could maybe taxi back to the gate and no, we're not taxiing back to the gate. So there's all these jokes about how you can help a dog go to the bathroom in the airplane. And I said, hey, you know what? We're on a 727. I can drop the F stairs and she can take the, air, the dog out and let it go to the bathroom Everybody's got their engine shut down. This was before 9-11, you could do things like this. Um, so the captain called and said, you know, we're gonna drop the stairs if that's okay and uh, let this lady take her dog off, fine. So um, the flight attendant says, do you mind, Lynn, do you mind talking to the lady? I'm, you know, I'm busy. So I go back to the lady and say, excuse me, ma'am, I'm gonna drop the stairs in the back and you'll be able to take your dog out to go to the bathroom. <laughs> she says, but honey, I'm blind. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's that. Yeah, but I can tell the dog that he can go with you. And she hands me the harness, you know, the, the little short metal harness. So I go up to the cockpit, get my hat and coat so that I can look official, take the dog down the aisle, down the stairs, and that dog sees the grass and goes running for the grass, dragging me behind it. And answer to his prayers, goes into the grass and pulls me along with it. But the grass is so water soaked, my foot, I go knee deep in Florida mud, pull my leg out, and my foot, my shoe is still in the hole. So I reach over to get the my shoe out of the hole, and my hat, you know, those round hats, goes off my head, goes rolling across the ramp like a Frisbee. So the, <laughs> the dog, so I've got shoe in one hand, dog in the other, chasing the hat, finally get the hat, and I'm so glad it's dusk so that nobody can see this. Delta's behind us, and next, they turn on their wing lights <laughs> I'm on stage. So I try to hurry, limping back to the airplane, go up the stairs, um, give the flight attendant the dog, go in the bathroom and clean up. By the time I get up to the cockpit, the guys are laughing so hard they can hardly tell me what's going on. They're crying. And he said, Delta came on the radio on tower frequency and says, hey, TWA. We know this anti-discrimination is the latest uh, thing going on, but don't you think hiring a blind, lame female is taking it a little bit too far? <laughs> so, um, and, and yeah, you, I, you had to laugh. I, I wanted to be taken seriously so bad. I did not want to be laughed at, but you know, things like that happen and you just, you just gotta go with the flow. And, um, and that usually worked if you, you know, it, most of the stuff that was going on was not being done to me personally. It was just uh, junior high jokes, and and you know you you want you want boys will be boys to stop, and it'll be grow up and be a man. But it it took it's it gradually happened, and it's happening. But then it was an I keep saying that it was an interesting time to be in aviation. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we, we made it through, three of us. Uh, yeah, so I'd, that was one of the stories I came home to tell Karen and Terry, and they they had stories too. Um, and we made it one week short of being off probation. And I don't know if probation's the same now, but it was huge to get off probation. Uh, you had protection and your salary doubled, and we were barely making it. You don't make a lot of money. At, well. Um, we didn't as uh, beginning engineers. So we were really looking forward to that. And then we were furloughed. So um, starting all over with, uh, you know, going out, getting in touch with all the airlines that I'd put applications in far before and had done some parts of the interviews, hoping to do an interview again. 
but um, Karen, uh's dad was a TWA pilot and had his um, finger on the pulse of everybody that was hiring. And there was a cargo company called Seaboard World that was hiring pilots um, at, based out of JFK. And that's where we were, so it was handy. Um, let's see. It um, seems like that, I mean, that, that this, your story of that interview process, in a way, seemed a lot like the Air Illinois one in terms of they wanted you, like the door was open more than it seemed almost. Well, it was a very unique situation and setup. Um, I'm not sure how, I really didn't, I had just gotten engaged uh, to the young man that had the, the uh, private pilot handbook uh, on the airplane and talked me into coming down to Tamiami and finishing up my flying lessons. Uh, we started dating and five, you know, five years later we're engaged. And so I was looking forward to the time off. I thought it was fine being furloughed. I could uh, have some, and he was flying um, all of the airplanes out of Miami, um, out of Corrosion Corner. And I thought the Seaboard World um, interview would be great for him and invited him to come up and, because Seaboard had DC-8s based in London and 747s based in New York. So they were big airplanes. So mm. he came up for the interview. I drove him to the interview, and while he was being interviewed by Captain Hirschberg, I went in to talk to the secretary, Alice, just to spend the time. She finds out I'm a pilot also and starts asking me all kinds of questions and taking notes and tells me to go talk to Captain Hirschberg before I leave, and I'm thinking this will help my fiance get hired. And so go in and say hi to Captain Hirschberg, and he's sitting at this big desk, and there's this beautiful model uh, 747 on his desk. And he looks at the sheet of paper that Alice has put in front of him. I find out that secretary's, Alice was doing the interview basically, um, and says, how would you like to be the first woman to fly that 747? And I'm almost embarrassed to tell the rest of this story. I say, I don't think women can do that. Um, because that's what the, and I kind of, I could tell from his face, it was not what he expected to hear. He had just handed me the best gift anybody could ever give anybody. And I'd gone, oh, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I thought he was maybe joking. I was so used to guys punking me um, that I thought it was a joke. I didn't know the guy. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, no, I've been a TWA for seven years, you know, flight attendant, pilot, and all the guys agree that women can't fly the heavies. If two engines go out on one side, there's not enough strength to keep it going straight. So it's a, he goes, it's, it's hydraulics. <laughs> I'll show you. I, oh, okay. Well, maybe someday when we're in a simulator, you can show me that. Okay. And he says, and you've taken the stay nine test. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, we'll be seeing you. Okay. And <laughs> he stands up and I shake his hand and I leave. And two weeks later, I get the call from Alice saying, um, Okay, we've got a training class set up for you starting in two weeks. Can you be here? And I said, oh, with, with my fiance? No, he didn't. He's only got a two-year degree. You've got a four. We need, require a four-year degree, and you've taken the stay nine test. And I said, no. I turned it down. I said, I can't do that. Um, I can't take that away from him. That's not fair. Um, and she said, well, I'm not going to tell him that you said no. <laughs> think about it for a week. And of course, that's all I could think about while I'm vacuuming a pea green rug thinking I could be flying a 747. <laughs> um, so we had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Of course, you have to take the, you have to take the job, but you also have to give up the engagement ring. So, but it, uh, it, it was the right choice. Yeah, you, you need somebody in your life that's going to support your decisions and your career, and it was good that I found that out then. Didn't feel that way at the time, but, um, Captain Hirschberg ended up being one of the, just a wonderful man, an incredible pilot, and fantastic instructor. Um, I have, I, I wish he was, I wish I would have realized how much I had to thank him for while he was still around to thank him. So I hope somehow he knows. Um, maybe the book will help or his family know that how much uh, he changed my life. And yes. he took it upon himself to make sure that I had as much confidence in me and the airplane as he did. I got to do a C check. I got to take a 747 to the literally to the limits, to all the red lines and where all the bells and whistles and, and stick shakers and everything go off. 
I got to I got to do that uh, to I think well I know it to give me confidence in the airplane and um, took me along on on my IOE on my first trip and introduced me to all the dispatchers and maintenance people so that they knew that uh, you know he had confidence in me and it was and all the guys were fantastic um, the seaboard yeah. it's, it's fun being here um, your, your book opens with that story of of him actually testing putting you in the cockpit and and putting you in that in that situation that you've been told couldn't happen exactly Tell us about that Whew. well i didn't expect it you, you i was a first officer and first officers don't have to show that that um i think maybe they did on on the captain check um i don't even think then but since I had said I didn't think that could happen, I guess he had it in his mind that at some point he would show me. And it was actually his check ride. Um, he also flew in addition to being the chief pilot. He, uh, so he had to stay current. So it was his currency check. And he showed up when um, my SIM partner and I were being checked out. So we were in the SIM, part, SIM building at the same time. Found me and said, hey, I need a first officer and, uh, to go through my check ride. Well, you're not going to say no to the chief pilot. So sure. And I, and it was, I loved watching him fly. He, uh, he made it like an art. I mean, he could set the throttles and not touch them again on downwind and then slow down just based on putting down flaps and gear at the right time and just have to add a little bit before the flare. It was, like I said, it was an art farm. I just loved watching him fly. He just made it look so easy and smooth, and he was so in control. Um, so yeah, so I was I served as his first officer, and then he said, "Well, I think we got done so fast. We've got a little more time. Is it okay if um, if Lynn shows me what she what she knows?" And of course, you know, the FAA's in the in the seat though, and and sure. So we take off, and sure enough, he sets up the scenario that. Well, and I was expecting the first one. I mean, you're in a simulator, so of course you have an engine failure. Fine. Well, then you do a go around truck on the runway. And I'm going, no, there's not. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, so, you know, single engine go around. And then on downwind, sure enough, second engine goes out. And I, 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 <laughs> why? Why would he do that to me? Um, it was with the FAA there, you know, because he, he was a nice guy. And so the whole, then I'm feeling, okay, quit asking, you know, questions just fly the plane um, and it, it I did it went okay went well um, didn't use enough trim <laughs> but um, got it on the ground and as we're you know we taxi in and the other two guys leave and I, I my leg was so well to do this well, every pilots know you've got to put so much rudder pressure in that I had my hip locked into the seat my knee locked out for the whole approach and by the time we were done, I, my leg was dead. I didn't know if I was gonna be able to stand up. And so I said to him, why, you know, why would you do that to me? You know, and with the FAA here and yeah, I thought you were gonna help me. And he goes, I am helping you. Now you know you can do it. I'm not having you up there thinking you can't do something that you can. You're welcome. And the next time you get more rudder trim. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, thank you very much. And I meant it uh, with all my heart. Um, he, um, and then he goes, I'll, if you'll let me, I'll carry your flight bag. Said, yeah, you can carry my flight bag. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, wonderful memories like that of, um, of good guys that I wouldn't be here without, I guess. And, and this, this, uh, this group of them, the, the seaboard guys are some of the best. That's wonderful. So you found yourself after that, your your career included People Express, for those of us who can remember that airline. Uh, yes, uh, Seaboard merged with Flying Tigers, and I was at the bottom of the seniority list. I was the last that they had hired, so I was the first to be furloughed. Again, I think two weeks short of being off probation. So I was looking for um, an airline, started uh, interviewing all over again, um, and People Express had just started up. Well, this was during what deregulation, so there were all what yeah. they call the upstarts, and yes. there were airlines all over the place. Um, 
I will say uh, the, the, the book is a is there's a fascinating and this is I believe in your second book. There's it's it's a fascinating story of uh, the culture of deregulation and yeah. people express and yeah. what it was like to do that. It's a very interesting insight into what was happening during that time in the airlines. I'm glad you think so. Um, I wanted to put that in there because it, it is it it's a very you're right. It's a very interesting time in aviation history very unique um, and people express made the most of it I think more than any other airline um, the people that started people express came from Lorenzo's Texas air so I don't know if people remember kind of the Darth Vader of, of the airline industry um, that that there had to be a, a nice way to treat employees and the best way they could think of was to have the employees, uh, the flight attendants, pilots, and maintenance guys also run the airline, do hire the people that they wanted to work with, and train the people the way they thought they should be trained. Mm -hmm. um, so in addition to being a pilot or have, being on the airplane, you chose a on-ground position. And I loved it. Uh, I mean, yeah. well, it wasn't for everybody. So there were some people that we would interview that weren't interested in doing anything other than being on the airplane but that's why you have the interview you just find people that want to work together and and we did uh, we did a fantastic job of finding a group of people well and we were all young in 20s and 30s um, uh, having a great time we had the 737s <coughs> excuse me and then got more and then finally did get the 72s yeah. and the 747 but the um, it was just well, really fascinating to me, the dichotomy of, I mean, as a passenger, when you think of, you know, those, those that deregulation and people express you, you have an idea of, of flying on a discount airline and some of the other passengers and some of the challenges of that. But from an employee perspective and a culture perspective, it's almost a Camelot and a renaissance of, of what it's like and what it could be like to work for an airline. And the idea that you didn't follow the same seniority rules or follow all the same uniform rules or or those or, or roles and responsibilities is is amazing and it and I also thought it was interesting that you mentioned that ultimately it was the FAA that came in and said some of those rules are gonna have to change and you're gonna have to go back to regular uniforms you're gonna have to go back to seniority yes when we when we started flying international I think is when it happened uh, when the 747 started going international, um, we needed we needed to get more normal. Um, just I don't know why. <laughs> I yeah. was going to try to give an explanation, but yeah, up until then, it, there were no stripes, no hats. Uh, it, it, the the motto was it takes a team. Uh, nobody's more important than anybody else. Um, everybody's going to have to work together. And we did, and mm. I, I I loved it. I I liked that culture very much, and and the people that that got hired and the people that stayed there. Well, and I was in recruiting, so I got to help find people who enjoyed um, that kind of um, airline and that kind of culture to work in, and get to work with them. And after being at places where guys were surprised when they got in the cockpit and there was a woman there. I thought if I'm in recruiting, they're going to know from the very beginning, from the interview, that they're going to be flying with women. Um, That's so. great. There, there's also quite a few things in there I would I would let people know to further motivate the, everybody to, to get these books and, and read them. There, there's really stories of, of interesting things with, with that we can all learn from as pilots with the, your stories of kind of things that certain pilots have did that you flew with, not always good things, um, yeah. that are a little bit of kind of lessons that anyone who's uh, commanding an aircraft from, from an airliner down to a cub can learn yeah. from. Um, well, and I guess that's what sticks in your mind too, are the one the things that stand out are the really good and the really bad. So. <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, the most interesting. Um, yeah, yeah they're, and, they're, and, and, and you can learn. I think you learn a lot of times from how not to do something and as, as well as how to do something. So, 
yes, there's some lessons there. The uh, your second book goes into uh, something that I know is very dear to your heart, and that is uh, Honduras and and flying into Honduras, and and it starts with this: what's involved in air airline transportation into the TCU airport. Tell us about that, and then your work to uh, uh, with Roatan. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's the TGU. Just, uh, it, it, actually, the area is called Tonkantine, Tonkantine Airport, but it's Tegucigapa or Teguch. <laughs> Tegucigapa Air, uh, is the name of the city. It's the capital of Honduras, and it's where the the airport was. They've moved it now, um, so I can't say it is. Uh, finally, they moved it. Um, it was the one of the most, if not the most, well, it was the most dangerous airport to go into in Continental system. By the time I was flying in there, People Express had merged with Continental. So it was a Continental 737 I was taking in there. And the reason I was taking it in there was it was the one place I could fly that I could drop the kids off at school, have a flight, and come back and pick them up from school. Um, it's only a two two hour and twenty minute flight, which totally baffled their their um in, their teachers. <laughs> Couldn't believe I could drop the kids off and go go to Central America and be back in time to pick them up. But uh, that's what I did. Um, and it was special entry airport because there was no electronic guidance. The it's high altitude and it's thirty three hundred feet, and then it's it's surrounded by mountains, so it's a visual only landing. And you have to make the approach inside that bowl of mountains and um, know from experience uh, what speed, what configuration, and what altitude you need to be on all the way around to make that very tight turn at the end um, with a 40 flap landing. And as you're coming down, the mountain behind you is coming down at the, so you're constantly getting a terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up, whoop, whoop, <laughs> that you're ignoring for the only time in, in your life um, to make this landing. But um, yeah, you and you had to do it, well, there were all kinds, it was a captain only landing, you had to be trained, you had to do it at least every 90 days, but uh, something you had to do a lot or not at all. And I got good at it and enjoyed it. And, um, and, and, well, I'm like, and it, <laughs> you know, my chief pilot, when I first signed up for it said, you know, why are you signing up for this? What, what are you trying to pull? I don't have any instructors right now. And uh, why, why, why do you want to do this? It matches my kid's school schedule. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a normal reason for a pilot to want to ha have a certain flight. So, but it worked for me. It worked for us. So, um, I going in there. We always had. Excuse me again a minute. <clears throat> We always had missionaries on board who were going down to help the schools and the clinics and they would put, were bringing in supplies. So I, I got to meet some of them and ask them what supplies they needed. I was always coming in. I didn't need it. It was, it was a turn, so I didn't have an overnight bag. I had room in the cockpit. So I started taking things in for them that they needed um, and then started doing it on my days off and taking other friends down um, to help out. And we just... Um, I don't know, there was so much need and I had the ability to fill the need. So, you know, why not? Um, but then we found out about a little island off on the North uh, shore called Roatan. And it had even more need because they had built a clinic that they couldn't open because the electricity was so expensive. They couldn't, they couldn't have, <laughs> they didn't have any electricity. So um, I, the pilots introduced, played, band, played in a band with the mayor it was amazing how things just line up when the, I don't know, the universe creates this path of things to happen so that things happen. And I talked to the mayor's wife and she said her, the best idea to raise money to make, to make money for the electricity was to bring in used athletic shoes that their daughters who needed community service hours for their college applications could sell. <clears throat> so as a, <clears throat> Uh, traveling on a pass as an employee, I could bring in two 70-pound boxes, and I found an athletic shoe store um, that was willing to donate um, their used shoes. If somebody brought in the, a used pair, they'd give them 20% off of their next pair, 
and they catered mostly to marathon runners that were constantly getting new shoes, really high quality shoes. So we raised enough money to open that clinic. And then, but then of course the clinic needed, uh, well, medicines and, <clears throat> and funds for a uh, doctor and nurse and, and, and run it. And then people found out that I could bring things in. So the other clinics wanted things. And then we started a soccer league and, and so they needed, my kids played soccer. So I was able to bring in, uh, in, in addition to the uh, other shoes, uh, soccer shoes and then soccer uniforms. And okay, I keep asking permit. Can I tell this really good? My favorite of story <laughs> of uh, the success story that we had down there was um, brought in enough soccer shoes and gear and the ball and everything that we were able to create a soccer league. And for the first time, the mainland recognized the teams on the island and invited the 14, 15 year olds to play in a tournament. And the tournaments are where the um, the coaches watch or the the uh, people watching for the their main teams called Olympia. It's the scouts. The scouts are watching for talent for Olympia, and for the kids got chosen to be sponsored which means they pay for their training. They pay for them to have this possibility of, you know, a better life. And so we were able to change the rule. It used to be the soccer was set up to keep the kids off the street that weren't going to school, but it was so popular that we could make, make the rule that you had to be in school to be able to be on that team. It was called the Pirates, the Pirates. Um, you had to be in school to be on that team to have the chance to go to these tournaments. And, um, I don't, you just I I got to take down a an oxygen concentrator one time an autoclave things that they needed for to do another surgery otherwise they, you, you get to save lives. Isn't that <laughs> so wonderful? It was fantastic. Um, so I started Absolutely. a nonprofit uh, when I retired. Um, well, they still needed things after I retired, and I didn't realize how much money I was spending while I was working. Uh, which I could do while I was had an income, but once I was retired, it wasn't working out quite so well. But some friends solved that problem and said, well, you just need to start an, a nonprofit. So we started something called Roatan Support Effort, or ROSE. And the book, in fact, is also a uh, fundraiser for that nonprofit um, that you can order on my website. Is it okay if I give a little plug? To of course, absolutely. Um, com. It's very simple. Absolutely. And you can order the book there, and um, I and that that way you can get a signed copy. Um, if you want something special in it, let me know, and the money goes towards uh, Rose. You can also order it on Amazon, and I've even seen it now with uh, other uh, book um, uh, companies selling it. So you can, there's a lot of places you can get it, but the only place you can get it and have your the money go to Rose and have it signed is if you get it from my website. So please do that. Absolutely. So www.lynnripplemeyer.com. And I, I cannot recommend the book enough. We, we, there, there are pictures in the book as, as well. And in both the books, I'll show a quick thing, which is this, uh, the TGU approach mm -hmm. coming mm -hmm. in here, which is, which is wonderful. And, and so many more things that you can see of Lynn uh, flying uh, back then. And, and I love this one. You made it onto <laughs> Jeopardy. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, they did not. I that was a shock to me. Um, but yeah, that's as my son says. No, you've made it. I said, no, I need to be an, an answer on a crossword puzzle yet. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that absolutely wonderful? Well, Lynn, thank you so so much for taking time to join us this, here this evening on Social Flight Live. Your story's wonderful. Uh, the book again, Life Takes Wings. It, it, it's just a wonderful read. Uh, a lot to learn from this, a great story. And in addition to that, as you mentioned, it helps your foundation, Rose, for the uh, Roatan Relief. And so thank you so much for taking time to join us here on Social Play Live. Oh, Jeff, thanks for the invitation. It was fun. Absolutely. And have a wonderful evening. Thank you. I will. You too. And thank you to all of you for taking time out of your evening to join us here for another show of Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday, that's May 2nd at 8 p.m. with the Hurricane Hunters, pilots of the P-3 Orion,
going into the uh, eye of the hurricane and mapping things out for NOAA, helping to study those so people can prepare on the ground and uh, do as much as we can to save both life and property. It's going to be a fascinating evening with the pilots from NOAA Hurricane Hunters. In addition, on Tuesday, May 9th, Heather Penny, the F-16 pilot from 9-11 that was here on our show, will be back in this time talking about national defense strategy and her current job that she works with aviation and studying what is the latest in, in terms of what's happening around the globe in America's preparedness when it comes to aviation and our national defense. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, the work that she does with the Mitchell Institute, and I'm sure it's going to be an extremely enlightening evening for everyone. Until next time again, thank you so much for taking time to support general aviation, to support social flight, and join us for these great shows with incredibly inspirational people. And I wish you all blue skies. Thank you.